good afternoon. You're listening to 90.7 FM KALX. I'm Franklin, and this is Berkeley Rocks. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on our daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, we'll be discussing current events in the world of science. In addition, we'll be joined by Dr. Regina Bashi to discuss the Citrus Project. Also, we'll find out how blisters are formed. So stay tuned for all this, plus the world-famous question of the week, coming right up here on Berkeley Rocks. Welcome back to Berkeley Grox. I'm Franklin, and I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How you doing, Frank? I'm um, pretty good, except I just got over a little hangover. A little hangover. Yeah. What were you hung over? Uh, a little stout beer. Oh, okay. Uh-huh. I thought you were hung over the side of a cliff, and that oh, that's okay. always fun too. Yeah, that's true. I, I remember you gave me that book about how to survive uh, from these <laughs> sort of weird situations, right? Right. The uh, worst case scenario. Handbook there. My my favorite was the uh, what happens if you get a limb severed off and what you should do about it. Uh, I don't recall that one. What should you do if you get a limb severed off? Uh, apparently, Besides screaming loudly. Well, so they they advise that you you remain calm, you clean your uh, whatever you have left over, mm-hmm. put it on ice, but do not freeze it. Okay. Do not put it in water because it'll rot, and uh, you'll have about five or six hours where you may be able to reta- reattach it. Oh well, tell that to uh, Lorena Bobbitt's husband. Uh-huh. uh-huh. But I think I think he got through that okay. Yeah. All right. That's, okay. <laughs> in case in case anyone's just tuning in, this is a science show by the way. Science show. Yes. But uh the news of the week is uh something that some warning came out of the WHO, the, the WHO, World yeah. Health Organization. Right. And I think many of you probably know that there's an epidemic going on, uh a cold-like epidemic. Ooh, I did not know this. No? Okay. So uh I think it probably started sometime last week, but it really exploded last week where there's been more than 100 cases of people getting these flu-like symptoms uh-huh. and 10 have already died. Wow. M- most of these people are from uh, Southeast Asia. Or southern China. Oh, so it's sort of more confined to Asia right now. But unfortunately, a lot of the travelers have come to the U.S. and they've already had a couple of cases in Canada, Georgia, and uh, they actually quarantined a plane in Frankfurt. Oh, because of the uh, actual... Right, there was one passenger who had it. Huh. But um, the scary thing about this is they don't know what's causing it, whether it's a bacteria or a virus. Mm. They're leaning towards the virus theory right now. Right. They think it's not a flu, which is actually a good thing. Once you get a flu that's mutated to an extent where you don't have the antibiotics, then you're in big trouble. Right, right. Well, I, don't, I didn't think uh, flus could be uh, treated by antibiotics uh, in general because the antibiotics generally right. attack bacterial kind of infection. Wow, so uh, I guess the CDC and uh, WHO, they're probably all... Yeah, they're scrambling to find out a cure for this or treatment. Huh, so the, what's going on? Or should, are there any precautions people should take? What's the idea? Yeah, don't make any trivial visits to uh, Asia at this point if you don't need to. Um, Darn. Don't hang around the uh, chickens or or uh, the dirty places around there. So my trip to Thailand is out then. 
well, it's been confirming viewers have been going on about you know when and where a new epidemic would spread, and uh-huh. uh, because of the humid and moist conditions over there and the, the huge population density, it's very easy to get new uh, epidemics starting somewhere in Asia. Mm-hmm. There's tons of articles on this, so just go to your Google sites, um, check out you know WHO or pneumonia, and you'll find tons of articles. Those are my favorite sites anyway. Actually, I think pneumonia is my homepage setting. Ah, uh, pneumonia.com. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so have you ever been in this sort of situation where you have a ton of bowling balls and you just don't know how to stack them most efficiently? I have one bowling ball, and I recall you also have one too. But... Well, we don't need to talk about my uh, <laughs> my bowling ball shopping endeavors or lack of shopping endeavors or I guess what some people might call... Uh, anyway, but we don't need to talk about that. Yeah, no, uh, so this is actually a bit of a problem. Uh, so one of uh, the, the great uh, astronomers, Johannes Kepler... Proposed mm-hmm. that the most efficient way and densest way of packing a bunch of spheres was to put them into a pyramid shape. In a pyramid shape. Right. And it was just a conjecture. He had no way of uh, proving it, but just said it's the most efficient way of, of stacking uh, spheres. Uh huh. Um, but this hasn't been uh, uh, proven at all mathematically huh. until recently, about four years ago. A 250-page uh, proof was submitted by uh, a, a fellow named Sam Ferguson from the University of Michigan, and uh, he was working with uh, mathematician Thomas Hales at the University of Pittsburgh. And uh, they submitted this proof at the Annals of Mathematics, which was essentially a um, kind of a brute force uh, type of proof of it. And it took reviewers about four years, and they're saying they're 99% correct that uh, this proof is uh correct that, in fact, spheres or bowling balls or oranges, whatever you want to have it, mm-hmm. can be most efficiently stacked by placing them in a pyramid. That's amazing. Thank God for mathematicians, huh? <laughs> How could we survive without this kind of uh, this kind of knowledge? But no, it's, it's actually quite interesting. But, you know, they said, you know, we're not 99% correct. We're going to go for 100%. And they've uh, started a whole new project called the Flyspec Project. And anyone who wants to look at that can go to the uh, University of Pittsburgh website and They'll show you about that. But uh, kind of interesting, and uh, it's it's certainly cool if you're ever in, in that conundrum of how do I stack my, my bowling balls. Or any type of balls. All right. We all have that problem. So, Charles, do you ever wonder how bat, uh, butterflies get that shimmering opal-like color? How they get the shimmering opal-like color? Yes. I don't think I've ever seen a butterfly with a shimmering opal-like color, but... Not like this one here? Oh, okay. There is a... Uh... Oh, so I'm holding a picture of a, a, a blue opal-like butterfly here. But anyways... <laughs> yes, that's right. It is radio. We should at least try and describe what we're looking at here. I think they see it, right? I'm, I'm holding the picture of three squiggly lines. Mm-mm-mm. What do you see? I see a line. So the reason why you get all this color is because of microstructures, nanostructures, which diffract light in such a way that you know you see certain colors and not other colors at the same time. Oh, so they're sort of like small little crystalline particles right. or something that are actually in the fly's wings or whatever? Yeah. So some scientists are trying to um, manufacture materials which have these microstructures. And what they found about these butterflies is that it's very easy to wash off dirt and it'll just fall right off of them. Hmm. It's very hydrophobic, and if they can produce these um, these properties on you know commercial materials, you can make say you know walls which are very easy to clean. You just spray water, it just 
falls off and uh, oh wow you know, it also looks nice too. Right, right. So it'll it'll retain its color, but all the uh, dirt specks will just not adhere. Right. So uh, Osamu Sato at the Kanagawa Academy of Sciences and Technology in Japan uh, have developed such a material using uh, polystyrene spheres and uh, silica silica nanoparticles, which self-assemble around this polystyrene. Hmm. And once they remove this polystyrene, which is you know on the order of uh, a couple of microns, they get this material which can shimmer in the light really, really well. Wow. Okay. So, so how long how long before we uh, we get these butterfly paint buckets in our uh, stores? Probably not too long. So they they've been able to get it in different colors, you know, from blue to green to red, depending on the size of these now structures. Okay. And uh, if anyone wants to more, they can go to the research of Angevant Chemie, the international edition. So uh, do you like to uh, pump iron with your brain? Pump iron with my brain. You mean like little tiny nails through my uh, uh, blood vessels? Uh, that wasn't what I had in mind, but uh, sure, you could try that. And uh, apparently, you know, total cereal. That whole box has enough iron to make up one nail. Exactly one nail. Yeah. I, I'm really so. Is it actually digestible then? Because I mean, if you yeah, that was actually a high school experiment. We uh, we got a box of total cereal. We uh, put in you know you know water, right? And then uh, put a magnetic sterile, and then at the at the bottom we see all these uh, tiny. Uh, iron filings <laughs> getting to the bottom. Yum. Mm-mm. That's what your body needs is iron. You know, you can't digest iron without uh, it being chelated somehow. So. Yeah, that's true. I don't know what the point of that was. They just like they <laughs> if I just dissolve your stomach. Yeah, they go out. to they go to Detroit and get the they put in the cereal. <laughs> anyway, no, what I'm referring to is actually the um, the aging brains of uh, of everybody as they get older and older. It turns out that if you exercise physically, you know, walk, run, swim, lift weights, right. that not only will your muscles be enhanced uh-huh. and your heart, but also your brain. Also <clears throat> your brain. Well, I heard like for every one hour you get the uh, the cardio going, you actually get two extra hours of life in your uh, lifetime. Okay. So uh, on average, then you get one more hour. Yeah. Because <laughs> you've lost one exercising. Right. No, anyway, no, but seriously... It turns out that uh, when they measured uh, the brain masses of people who either exercised regularly or who hadn't, mm-hmm. that uh, in this group of individuals, they actually saw an increase in the amount of uh, gray matter and white matter, the cells and axons, essentially, right. that exist between uh, the two groups. And actually, the ones who exercised had a better retention of, of brain matter. Wow. So brain atrophy actually atrophies from... Uh from inactivity, inactivity, from being a couch potato, <laughs> watching Friends all day, <laughs> listening to the show. You know, all kinds of things can atrophy your brain. I, I thought you tur- you, you uh, listened to the show to turn on your brain. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Jeez, I, I didn't know that. I've never listened to the show, so mm. I wouldn't know. Anyway, but seriously, so uh, Arthur Kramer and Stan Colum and colleagues at the University of Illinois uh, Urbana-Champaign, uh, Urbana-Champaign showed this in the February edition of uh, the Journal of Gerontology uh, Medical Sciences. And uh, this fellow Kramer says that the effects become very pronounced with age. So things that uh, should be looked at, they suggest that uh, it's probably not just due to increased blood circulation, but also probably uh, exercise releases the number of uh, growth factors, like right. these things called neurotrophins or other things that help to prevent brain loss. And a daily bowl of total will help too, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just don't uh, drive the nail through your brain. And that's all for that current events in the world of science. You're listening to Berkeley Grox only here on 90.7 FM. Coming up, Dr. Rosina Baisky will join us and tell us about research in the interest of society. So stay tuned.
Welcome back to Berkeley Grocks. Well, imagine if we could save all the energy loss from office buildings in the country each year. That would translate to $55 billion or 35 million tons of carbon emissions. And what if traffic could be optimized so that each computer could cut down their, their driving by 15 minutes a day? Well, that would amount to about 150,000 gallons of gasoline saved per day and about $15 billion in lost wages over the year. Well, recently, the Citrus Project here at UC Berkeley has been created to solve these and other technology-related problems for our society. Joining us today is the director of the project, Dr. Rosina Baichi. Dr. Baichi, thanks for joining us. Uh, it's my pleasure. So first of all, could you tell us what Citrus stands for and what kind of projects it entails? Uh, Citrus is um, more than a project. It stands for Center for Information Technology and Research in Service to Society. It was initiated by Governor Davis, who in the good days of California put on the table $400 million for four institutes of this kind, which would promote the technological edge that California has enjoyed in the good days of the economy. And these four, there were three conditions. One was that for every dollar, the faculty, the every state dollar, the faculty would raise two other dollars. That the money will be, that the proposals will be, for the centers, will be multi-campus, multidisciplinary and that they will be related to technologies that helped California to get the, on the top of the economic development, which was bio, info, and nano. Okay, so there, there is a center in San Diego and UC Irvine on telecommunication, Cal IT Square. There is a nanotechnology center between UCLA and Santa Barbara. There is a structural biology center, QB3, between Berkeley, UC San Francisco, and UC Santa Cruz. And Citrus is the most complex center, which is between Berkeley, Santa Cruz, Davis, and UC Merced, which is the, new, the newest campus of the UC system. The scientific agenda of Citrus. Citrus is a center of center, okay? And Berkeley has several centers. And there are other centers at UC Davis, UC uh, Santa Cruz, and UC Merced, since it's just starting, there the commitment from UC Berkeley is in helping to set up the educational uh, program. That's the function and that's the relationship between UC Berkeley and UC at this point. Eventually, we hope to collaborate also in research, but right now it's mostly the educational agenda. I understand Citrus is about combining information technology and embedded devices. Could you explain that a little bit? Yes. So, as I mentioned, the Citrus is, is about information technology and its applications. So we have two forces. One is the technology push which comes from mostly from computer science and electrical engineering uh, research agenda, mm -hmm. okay? And, uh, of course, Berkeley's 
um, strengths uh, is in one of the many strengths is in the the, the sensor networks. Mm-hmm. Okay, and the ubiquitous computing and you know the, the whole thing about embedded systems and and, and sensory technologies, um, wireless sensory technologies. Uh, the other force is the application pull, mm-hmm. and this comes from uh, applications that are very relevant to California, but also relevant to the whole world, namely energy conservation, uh, helping understanding, modeling, and controlling transportation, environment control, education, health um, management, and um, homeland and disaster management disaster, both man-made, which is the homeland security, and natural disasters such as fire and earthquake. And Dr. Bachi, I just want to ask you, what do you have of the future? Um, in what ways would you see citrus technology being implemented? M- many, 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 many. Uh, the, uh, the sensor networks we are exploring uh, indoor, namely how they can control energy consumption, heat, and light. For example, sensors that detect human presence, is that right? That's correct, yeah. And how you can control the, the, the climatization of the environment where you are in. And this, right now, we are going to test it in the quarry hall, but uh, eventually it should be also applicable to your home so that you can save energy and thereby not be so dependent on, on oil and, and everything else. Right. Um, but this technology has many other applications, the sensory obs- technology and the virus, for example, for elderly people. Um, the, this technology can help the elderly be more independent, longer be independent. For example, it can remind elderly people when they should take their medicine. It can monitor them if they fall or, 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 or have some accident. Uh, it can help their relatives, their children to check up on the ma or, mm-hmm. or, or father, you know, are they okay periodically. Uh, it can help them to feel more secure and and monitor who is outdoor on front door and uh, if it's a desirable element or non-desirable. So, so security issues. Um, this technology help for water consumption. Mm-hmm. Water is is a, is, a, is going to be a big resource that we have to all worry about. How do we use water f- in, in the environment? Uh, this and uh, this technology can help also third world countries because it's a, it could be a very simple technology and wireless so you can make it available to villages uh, and remote sites so that they are more aware you know what what their government is doing and what what they but cut out the middleman and, and right. save 
this way money. So this technology has many, many applications. But furthermore, we should not forget also that, that IT has a tremendous applications in humanities as well. And for purposes, for example, history, you could really recreate history on uh, via virtual reality. You can um, teach uh, students and make it more interesting, walk through old Athens, old uh, Egypt, old Mesopotamia. We can um, show the students how people used to live, what their, their customs were. So, so um, there, there is a lot of activity on campuses in this regard, and uh, Citrus is trying to tie all of it together. That's very exciting. Um, I understand the MIT Media Lab has the, the Oxygen Project, where they're using ubiquitous computing for enhancing living and working environments. Um, could you tell us how it's related to Citrus and how it's different? Well, I think on as technology goes, it's similar, uh, but in terms of the application pool, I think um, the Citrus agenda is much richer and broader. Well, I guess we're running a little bit out of time today. Uh, Dr. Baichi, are there any last comments you would like to add? One thing I didn't talk about it is that Citrus is is very heavily engaged and supported by top IT industry. We have founding corporate members such as Intel, IBM, Hewlett-Packard, STC, and Microsoft, who have been extremely supportive uh, of the Citrus agenda, and at the same time they also are advising us which way to go. So it's a, it's a very new way of cooperating between academia and industry, which is very exciting because the industrial folks keep us to much closer to the reality, what could be useful. And at the same time, um, they also recognize the importance of long-term research. Professor Baichi, thanks for joining us on Berkeley Grox today. You are very welcome. And that was Rosina Baishi, the director of the Citrus Project, who we just talked to. For those of you who are interested in this project and the people involved, I would recommend checking out their website, citrus.berkeley.edu. You're listening to Berkeley Rocks only here on 90.7 FM. Coming up, find out how blisters are formed. So stay tuned. Welcome back to Berkeley Rocks, and here's the indefatigable science lady with this week's edition of Everyday Science. 
Ever wonder what causes blisters? The answer can be found in everyday science. To get down to the business of understanding what causes blisters, let's go deep down inside the foot of this jogger. First, through the athletic shoe, which, by the way, looks brand new. Then through the sock. And finally, we end up inside this jogger's heel, where we can see many plump, round, and very youthful basal cells, which is one of the types of cells skin is made of. But wait, as basal cells get older, they get pushed back up toward the surface by newer cells. By the time they reach the surface of the skin, they're quite dry and flaky, and basically dead. Ouch, feel that? Friction from the new running shoe is starting to build up between the dead skin cells here on the surface of the heel and the cuff of the shoe. And if that friction gets any worse, it's going to pull our dead layer away from the fresh layer underneath, creating one big... Uh-oh, there it is. The dreaded bubble. That's caused when the space between our dead layer and the fresh layer underneath opens up. Know what comes next? Get ready to swim. Because it looks like the two skin layers have sprung a leak, and suddenly our blister is... filling up with water. Not to mention sweat. Time to hit the road. Or maybe not. Anyway, thanks for letting us run on about blisters today and for being a part of Everyday Science. Everyday Science is part of Bayer Corporation's national education program, Making Science Make Sense. Man, don't you wish you could be her jogging shoes? Uh, why would I want to be her jogging shoes? Then I'd be next to those blisters. Mm, but you could save her soul. <laughs> I don't know if I want to save her soul, but you know what? If that everyday science lady wants to come over and pick my blisters, she can do it any day. I, I wish to reiterate, everyday science lady, come and pick my blister. And now here's the quote of the week. Ah, the quote of the week. And it comes from our very own George W. Oh, he's certainly not one of my favorites, but anyway. <laughs> he says something to the effect of, we cannot allow cloning to come out of chambers. We cannot allow cloning to come out of chambers. Yes, when the uh, the house was voting on it. I, I, I thought he was actually thinking that there's like a cloning chamber. Wouldn't surprise me. Well, I mean, if you think about all the politicians, they're not that much different. Right, right. <laughs> so I, I think, think it's a little too late. <laughs> he came out of some sort of cloning chamber, uh, the one that was malfunctioning, apparently. But anyway. <laughs> and now here's the crazy Scotsman with the answer to last week's question of the week. Oh, that's right, Frank. I'm glad you had invited me again to give you the answer to last week's question of the week. And so I'm sure you're puzzling over it. You've seen the glass, and you're wondering, what the heck is the glass? I mean, it's just right there. I mean, is it solid? Is it a liquid? Is it a gas? You may think it's a solid, but it's not really a solid. It's a liquid. Aye, a liquid. How can it not be a liquid if it looks solid? Well, it's very, very viscous. And if you're not going to be very viscous, you can not be like a great, great liquid, but it's a liquid nonetheless. Just I'm like not... my honey. Oh, the honey is really viscous, but not so viscous as glass. Mm. Okay, and uh, here is a Tokyo with the rubber dub dub question of the week. What is uh, robbing alcohol? If you know the answer or think you know the answer, email us at grox at hotmail.com. You won't win anything, but you'll be shaken, not sad. And that's all for this edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us here at Berkeley Grox, you can email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Franklin. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Stay tuned for more music with your host, Mr. Pixel. Mm-hmm.